Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Welcome back for another fine edition of the Anime World Order podcast. We get our kicks on show 66. Clever, clever. It worked, didn't it? Each week on the Anime World Order podcast, more or less, we are a podcast dedicated to the discussion of Japanese cartoons, comics, and fandom-related hilarity. I am Daryl Surratt. I'm finally going to try and review something this week after what seems like two months of not having done anything related to watching anime. <laughs> I am Gerald Rathgold, and I'm going to be uh, doing the same, although I have been watching anime. I'm going to right the wrongs of the internet about a particular show. <laughs> Crusading for justice? Crusading for justice. I am Clarissa, and I've been watching a whole lot of anime either lately, which I need to fix, because there's a whole season now going on that I'm behind on that I was going to try and keep up with. What's our excuses for not keeping up with the anime? Is it because the new anime shows aren't that good, or is it because we just don't have time due to real-life bad things happening? I don't know. I get home, and then I intend to watch the stuff, and then it ends up never happening. How about you, Gerald? I'm still kind of in the recovery stages of moving. I did move some weeks ago, and I did it in the worst possible way, so I'm still feeling the pain from that. Well, think of it this way, Gerald. At least when you moved, you were able to get your microphones out of the box and record a new podcast before Aaron and Noah were able to, since their mics are still in boxes after their move. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, I still actually have shelving here that is wrapped in uh, plastic wrap. I thought that this was a very logical way to move things, but I've got nothing but ridicule from everyone who has seen it. For those of you who have not been inside Gerald's home, just to say most everyone listening to this who is not a thief... (laughs) Rather than take his DVDs and books off the shelves, put them into very heavy boxes, Gerald decided to get cling wrap or plastic wrap and wrap it around the shelves such that the DVDs wouldn't topple out and fall everywhere. Maybe I should post a photograph of this. Maybe people viewed it as like a very ghetto contraception method, only (laughs) applied to shelving. Perhaps, but I didn't have to pack any boxes. I just wrapped it all up in plastic wrap and carried it off, although one shelf did split in half. That was probably a, a shitty shelf to begin with. Note that you haven't actually taken the plastic wrap off of the shelves. Some of them. Most of them are still wrapped up. What's the reason for that? Are you, are you still haven't moved them into the right spot yet? Because I need to get new shelving, so I don't know. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. So if you need to get new shelves anyway, then why didn't you just take the DVDs off the shelves, box them up, and throw the shitty shelves away? Because that would have involved me having to get boxes. This, I just wrap them up and take them away, straight away. So, <laughs> less work. It's ghetto, but it works. I personally would not be able to carry an entire shelf 
it's easier to carry a box, even if it might be heavier. The shape of it is a little more feasible. But oh, that well. is because you are a weak man. I think I'm you have a very... to blame but yourself for being wiped out still after moving. I'm a very, very strong man. A very strong man who's still wiped out. And I had the help of another strong man who uh, kicks people in the head for fun. Yeah, his birthday is <laughs> Saturday. And by Saturday, he means Saturday three or four weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, Saturday the 16th of February. We're recording on the 14th of February today. It's Valentine's Day. Wait, wait, it's Valentine's Day? Yeah. Oh. See. Whatever. We're podcasting on Valentine's Day. I I think that that proves that we're the real deal. The real deal. The real deal. Yeah. Nothing else to do on Valentine's Day. What else do people do on Valentine's Day? I mean, usually I watch Charlie Brown special. Charlie Brown special. uh, Yeah, yeah. That's all I do. I guess other people on Valentine's Day. Is there even a Charlie Brown Valentine's Day special? There is a Charlie Brown Valentine's Day special. Didn't Charlie Brown never get Valentine's? That's the point. It was a Valentine's Day special about him never getting Valentine's. Okay, maybe I saw that back in the day and Bill Melendez or whatever his name is just scarred me for life. But on the subject of things not related to Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang, if you'd like to send us emails, address is animeworldorder at gmail.com. So with that in mind, let's actually put our money where their mouth is and read some of them. I have an email here from Adam Kimsey. He writes... Hey, AWO, this is Adam here. I really enjoy your show, and I thought I would send you guys an email to show my appreciation for it. Anyways, I've checked out some anime and manga because of you guys, like Vista the North Star, and I think it's awesome. I'm in the process of ordering Offered now due to your recommendation, also from episodes long aired ago. Anyways, thanks for the recommendations, and on with the rest of the email. I live in Atlanta and started listening to your show sometime around October of last year. So I was pleased to find out that you were at AWA whilst I was on the premises of the Waverly hope to see you guys there this year as well. As far as things I would like to see reviewed, I would really like to see you guys all review Freedom Project once all of it has been released. Or oh, however so you, you mean like 2010? Probably. I'm aware that it's $30 a disc, so of course, well, I found other means of getting it. Also, I'm very interested in the writing aspect of the anime industry. I would like to know, if at all possible, how would I get to actually compose the stories behind the art? Any advice would be helpful. That's all. I'll leave you guys for now. Expect to hear from me in the future. Your dedicated fan. P.S. It would be epic if you'd read my letter on your show. Well, there you go. On the subject of Anime Week in Atlanta, we have it on good word that TV's Patrick Macias is a guest this year at AWA one more time. Yay! I'll finally maybe actually get to meet him. Yes, indeed. And so we will try and do some sort of hilarious Otaku USA-related panel, perhaps. We should probably get some of the interviews that we got from last AWA post. No, because I have to edit them. I would edit them, too. You edited the last one, though. Yeah, yeah I did edit the Anyway, last to one. answer his questions... About Freedom Project. Well, I saw, what, three or four episodes of it? All that was released at the time, and you saw... They only just and- released the last episode in Japan a few weeks ago. It's one of those things that took a really long time to come out. Well, I mean, it was like one episode every six or eight months or so. Mm. Something like that. What we saw in the first couple of episodes was... For the amount of money that it is, and for the amount of technology and work that goes into it, hmm, I don't know. I saw a little further than you, and it does get better, but I'm totally with you on the idea that I'm not entirely sold on this whole cel-shaded 3D CG look. It didn't look good to me at all. It looks like they spent a lot of money to make it look like a flash animation or like a playstation game playstation 2 cutscene from like gungrave 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Erda or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, this was a big deal. This was a really expensive show to put together, and I guess something like that, it's really all about the writing and all that, and I felt it was kind of average. I think we should probably give it like a full-on review at some point. I could do it, but I think the main thing that bothers me about the 3D CG look is in 2D, it's kind of okay if they only really animate a person's mouth and eyes. In the CG, like the full 3D, when it looks like that, they look like they're marionette dolls. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the way they moved, it looked very jerky. Pixar, for what they're worth, are the kings at doing non-bad motion. Yeah. The opposite of non-bad would be good if I knew how to speak <laughs> proper English. But in Freedom, everyone just looks like they're made out of plastic or something weird like that. They all feel like they're floating against the background. Now, I'll give them credit in this sense. The same people who made Freedom Project made another thing called Kakarembo Hide and Seek, which showed on the Cartoon Network, and it's pretty neat. But if you'd never seen it before, that was made by three people, also with the 3D CG animation, and they got around the limitations of the technology because everyone wears masks. And everything is very dark all the time. Helps with the movement. Freedom, not so much. It also doesn't help that the show very clearly was either funded or made for Cup Noodle. Oh yeah, it was a cu- it's a commercial. Yeah. Basically, and Cup Noodle products are very prominently there in every episode. It's kind of hilarious because they'll actually like be in a fancy restaurant eating Cup Noodles. Or they'll have a guy like holding up a box, and then they'll leave the camera on the box of cup noodles for a few seconds, and then pan up to him. The most hilarious thing about Freedom Project is just the fact that Katsuhiro Otomo character designs are in it. And all you can think of when you look at those character designs is, wow, this is not as good as Akira. Yeah. And really, that's like the main curse of everything else that guy does. Yeah. You look at it and you say, hmm... This is not as good as Akira. Like Steam Boy. Very few things yeah. are as good as Akira. Yeah. And so to say that you're not as good as Akira isn't necessarily a damning combination, but if it's a right. thing that's going through your mind as you're watching one bike race. It's worthwhile asking because, I mean, this thing came out almost 17 years after Akira or so and yeah. uses the latest technology. And doesn't look as good. No, doesn't look as good. Then again, though, the staff for Akira is exponentially larger than the staff of Freedom Project. Anyway. Yeah. Right, right. Other question. The other one was about writing in the anime industry. This is a You know what? You should write this question to the Hey Answer Man column at Anime News Network. They will tell you all about the secret mm. for how to write and get into anime. No, the secret is that you can't. Basically, yes. Can you write in fluent Japanese? Yeah. A lot of people seem to think on the internet that, oh, I have an idea for a show. Give me the email address of Japan. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hello, Japan? I Mm. have an idea. Now, there are extremely few situations where this is not the case, and that is like, you can count them on one hand. Jan Scott Fraser. Jan Scott Fraser. Howl's Moving Castle. And, I mean, that woman didn't have anything to do with Howl's Moving Castle, the movie. Your best bet in that kind of thing is usually, like, if you would have some kind of English-language work that happens to get adapted, yeah. then you're not working directly on the anime, so that's probably not really what they're asking about. There was even a, a question in the Hey, Answer Man column once where he says, people send me these horrible premises all the time, <laughs> and the thing is, they're always bad. It's always... Uh, derivative of a shonen jump mm. or a combination of naruto avatar the last airbender sort of story they already have a billion of those why do they need to get somebody from another country who doesn't even speak japanese and to write a show that they already have a billion of i don't understand why a lot of these people aren't thinking of 
why don't I put together a really awesome comic book or a really great book, and maybe American animation could pick it up? Because they're weeaboos. No, we don't use I that know, word. I know, right. I know. It's the best term I can think Wendell of. Wendell Tiberius it. Snacks <laughs> will be upset. I know. I decided that's what those... WT stands for. <laughs> That sounds like as good a, an answer as any. We need a better term then for, I don't know if Japanophile is really strong enough. There's people who are just convinced that everything American sucks and everything Japanese is instantly so much better. And mm. so they hate American stuff and they think it's all crap and they don't want to make American comic books or American animation because then they'd be a, a filthy inferior Westerner and they have to try as hard as they can to be Japanese. I think the reason why so many of these ideas that get proposed are bad, and I have no idea what his idea is, because he didn't mention what his idea was. But obviously, I think the reason why so many of the ideas are bad is because the people who have proper ideas know to do the research or whatever to get in touch with actual people to make shows happen. Still, though, honestly, as far as Japan goes, how television shows get made over there kind of have to be in japan and part of like a production studio or something they don't just accept submissions for stories out of the blue yeah, yeah that gets you in trouble yeah yeah that's just like in america yeah. you can't just randomly email like here's the movie script that i wrote and hey steven spielberg look at this i'll be like no i don't want to see it because then if i make a movie that's remotely similar to it you can sue me for stealing your idea yeah, you have if to you go really, through the, the channels. If you really wanted to try and do something like that, your best bet would probably be, first of all, just start getting other writing jobs. Sell other pieces of writing in order to get practice and to get someone established, and then work on learning Japanese. As you learn more Japanese, maybe you'll want to move to Japan, and they do fairly frequently have manga contests and such in Japan where you can submit works. I don't know how it works exactly for people who are just doing writing. I suppose you'd have to find somebody who's an artist and team up with them. In terms of anime, maybe you could also, as your Japanese gets better, start trying to sell other pieces of writing in Japanese. Maybe little freelance writing articles or things like that. Maybe you could work your way up to some short stories or some light novels, and that'd probably be maybe your best point. Once you start writing professionally, you'll make connections. Because that's really how a lot of stuff works. Is like once you're in the business, then you start making connections and you introduce yourself to everybody you possibly can. And you try and make friends with everybody you possibly can. And once other people know you, then they're more willing to look at your stuff. Through them, you'll meet other people. And it progresses from there. And that's, you know, really how it goes. But I guess this question was more, how do you get that very first well, step? Well, that's just start writing stuff to practice with. Start submitting to wherever you can. Like, for the first thing, you can't be really picky. If you sit around and wait for, oh, the job I really want to have, like, all I really want to do is write a show that gets done by Gainax or Kyoto Animation or something. That's going to be really, really hard. What you need to do is just start submitting for other things. Maybe set up your own personal kind of blog or other thing, but also just submit short stories or articles to any kind of blogs or magazines or contests that you can find and just keep writing stuff. I tell you what, since we're podcasters, we would be irresponsible to not point out the fact that one of the hottest categories of podcasts is what people call patio books. Yep. 
audiobooks mm-hmm. only released in podcast form. People write their stories, record them, and release them as podcasts, like how old radio dramas and stuff used to be. There is a huge audience for this. Well, huge. Apparently. I guess it's... When I say huge, I mean huge as far as people who are willing to listen to audio podcasts. And I guess that it's so new that nothing really has happened with it beyond people putting up those things. Like, nobody I know has yet had their stuff made into anything else. At least not that I know of. Do you know of any? Well, unless they were famous first to begin with and then did podcasting, no. As far as people who started off as podcasters and then someone picked up the rights to their thing and started releasing books in print... Maybe that has happened, but I don't follow the scene well enough to know that for 100% fact. Right. And also, back to the anime thing, just so you know, the odds are so stacked against you because there is a nation of millions of people who were born speaking Japanese and who can write better Japanese probably than you can. Then you will be able to learn in even a decade worth or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and who have probably many more connections than you'll ever have. So, in terms of just the deck stacked against you, try changing the industry at home. The industry yeah. at home, I think, could benefit a lot more. The deck is already stacked against you at home. Horribly. Yeah. So That's not to say that you shouldn't try and do stuff that you want to do, but it's just, it's good to be prepared for... We're just letting you know that yeah. don't put all your eggs in that basket. It's already been proven that there is one guy that i know of who no we're never mentioning that that person exists we're not gonna say who he <laughs> no, is we're we aren't even just... gonna say who he is we just that person doesn't <laughs> exist it doesn't matter what his name is it matters what he did therefore <laughs> no one can ever know that it's even possible otherwise you, you uh. give that kid hope like the main character in freedom where it's like everyone's telling him the earth is destroyed and contaminated and filthy shithole and you don't want to look at it. But then he goes and he's like, but what if it's not? I saw a picture one time. No, you're an idiot. You're a retard. And then when he finally goes out and he sees it's all a lie. Well, I have to go now. It's earth is Japan. Then, then let's the let's ignore that that was ever said. Is this podcast. We'll ignore that it was ever said. So no, don't even try. Yeah, I mean... So. It's kind of the same thing about, you have this all the time with, like, I mean, there's, you know, the guy who directed Tech on Kingcrete, a Westerner who's directing anime over in Japan. Right, and that's like a first. There are people who work Americans and other Westerners who go to school and work in the Japanese game industry. It's not completely impossible. The thing is, it takes you know, a lot of work. You're not just going to be able to, like, send something you wrote to, like, one person, and then, bam, you're going to be an anime writer. I mean, you're going to have to work hard at learning Japanese. You're probably going to have to move to Japan at some point, really, in order to have much of a hope of doing it. Because really, all the people that get to do this stuff, they're people who move to Japan and are working at learning Japanese. So you're probably going to have to do both of those things, you're going to have to do other things in that field. Like, you're not going to get the dream job right off the beginning. You've got to write whatever you can and sell it and then make connections and build up from there. Oh, well, at least you didn't ask about how to be a voice actor in Japan or, I don't know, it's all the same. Oh, well. Did he have <laughs> any much. other parts of the yeah. question? Nope. All right. It. What else do we got as far as emails? Well, I got another better email from uh, Michael Minot. Perhaps I'm getting cynical in my old age, but it seems that the best way to gauge the success of any Gainax show 
is via the volume of adult doujinshi that are produced as a result of said show. Evangelion not only has produced copious amounts of such doujinshi, but apparently it still continues to do so. Since Gurren Lagann has likewise been successful in fueling the adult doujinshi trade, it's a sure bet that it was a big hit in Japan and will be too here in the U.S. So the basic formula goes like this. New Gainax series with little to no adult doujinshi equals show flops. New Gainax series plus lots of adult doujinshi equals show is a huge hit. Regards, Michael Minot. Post hoc ergo propter hoc? Is that one of those? I mean, surely yeah. surely the doujinshi happens as a result because of the popularity. Because the show is popular? Yeah. Mm. I mean, you need the fans first in order for them to make the fan works. The thing is that doujinshi is very, very strange. Very. The series that get made in the doujinshi and the characters that most people choose to focus on when they make those doujinshi do not necessarily indicate this is all of the things that are popular. Because there's a lot of things that get really popular that people don't really tend to make doujins of it. Case example, in point, Airmaster. Yeah. There's a lot of other shows, like Hajime no Evo is supposed to be really popular, but there's not a lot of... It would have to be to run of, for as long as it is. Right, yeah. but there's not a lot of doujinshi for it. At least Sorry? not that I've seen, anyway. I know that shoujo manga and anime is kind of weird in that... There are a few here and there that become really popular, like Sailor Moon had a ton of doujins, Cardcaptor Soccer became really, really popular with doujin groups, but a lot of times shoujo stuff doesn't always get as much doujinshi, like especially I know on the yaoi side of things, the majority of the doujins and the really big popular doujin series tend to be shonen jump series, and even though like a lot of shoujo series might be really popular, you don't always see as much doujinshi for them. Also, you could almost say that some of the super popular shows in Japan get virtually no doujinshi, like Saze-san, Shin-chan, oh, right, and uh, like, Detective Conan. Those things yeah. are very popular amongst the mainstream. Right, and doujinshi are ex- market and child-friendly yeah. shows. Doujinshi is exclusively made by hardcore fans. Right, and the otaku so, market goes for certain things, and as far as people in America are concerned, the only doujinshi we can really get is porno, because right. we can't read the majority of doujinshi that gets made, but yeah. anyone can understand what pornography is, regardless of translation, and this is a good thing, because the dialogue is terrible. Usually, or yeah. so Usually, Clarissa yes. tells us. Yeah. <laughs> In that sense, the characters and situations that are conducive to those sorts of doujinshi works are characters with designs that would suggest this would be a good design to use in pornography. And right. in Japan, that's one of two things. They've either got the big breasts and the trademark Gynax bounce, or they're six years old. <laughs> one or the other. In the case of Gurenlagen, it has both. And so everybody wins. I guess, like, as an example, I understand that the biggest shows this year, or at the most recent comic hat, were Gurenlagen and Code Geass. And my understanding is that those um, are... The- you know, on the Yaoi side, I believe uh, Chutera has been really popular as well. Okay. The number of doujinshi made help to tell you what is popular amongst the hardcore fans. Like, yeah. some years ago it was Sister Princess, and that was super, super crazy popular. Right. But I, I doubt anybody outside the hardest of hardcore fans in Japan knew what that was about. Yeah, hopefully I will never have to review Sister Princess, because no one will donate $1,000 to us. <laughs> Come and on, if guys. You keep- if you keep talking about it, then do we're, it. We're, we're gonna we're gonna have to set a time limit on that thing. No, so. no, it has to just be more of a when, not if. That's the idea. 
when on, will guys. not be Keep this week. More money. We don't need it right now, though. We're, we're perfectly set. That's right. Listen to these cowards. It's not going to be this week that happens, because we haven't actually told anyone what we're reviewing this week. Yeah. This week, <laughs> when I said I was going to get back on the horse and review something, I neglected to say what it was 30 minutes ago. But <laughs> I am going to be reviewing the latest Osamu Tezuka manga released by Vertical Inc. Yay! It is called Moot. That's spelled M-W. Not to be confused with any Gundam Seed pilots. <laughs> Both Clarissa and I have read that, so yes. that's what we're doing this time. I'm going to be looking at something that I talked about, again, about 30 minutes ago. This is a show that virtually everybody I know who's seen it hates it. Perhaps not without good reason, but I'll get to that in the review. This is a show called Hyper Combat Unit Dangayo. And I'll tell you why it is an awesome show and that you should respect it and like it. And you should hate manga entertainment even more than you already do. Oh, I love manga video. <laughs> <laughs> you would, Daryl. I am going to do something really surprising and probably bizarre for AWO history. I'm going to review a show called Potomayo, a Moe show. Therefore, it sucks, right? You might be surprised by uh, what we have to say about it. Oh, God, there goes our credibility. There goes your credibility. (laughs) Whatever, Daryl. We know you secretly love your Moe dating sims. I've never played a single one of them. But I've seen his hug pillows, so he's he's lying. (laughs) That's right. I took a Sharpie and I wrote (laughs) Clarissa on my hug pillow. (laughs) (laughs) What, you didn't write me on it? I'm, I'm... No. You know oh. why? Because you're just you're too so much man. Boyfriend, Daryl. <laughs> Gerald's boyfriend is named Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> he needs Amanda hug and kiss. <laughs> Do we have news this week or not? Uh, we have news, but uh... all right, that does it. Button starts now. <laughs> Let's news. Working to restore power. For this week, we actually have something that was a little bit unusual in terms of our sort of news, and that we didn't just pull it straight off of Anime News Network. In this case, we actually have a uh, post that was made on a live journal by our good friend, the Angry Otaku, who has called us many, many times in the wearer of fancy hats and uh, Bluetooth headsets. He had this rather interesting post that I thought would be uh, worthwhile going into. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's rather long, but basically, the Angry Otaku, he's part of this other podcast called AnimePodcast.net. As seen on Robotech the Shadow Chronicles Deluxe Edition. Yeah. How does that happen? Anyway. Video podcasters get all the luck. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Video podcasts killed the audio podcast star. Or even one star. Yeah. Anyway, apparently their show is partially funded by a group called Siam GX. Siam GX, as far as I can tell, is a creator of cosplay material. And they have a lot of these YouTube videos of their cosplay material. Apparently what happened one day is their entire account on YouTube got banned. And this was because of a complaint of a violation of copyright from TV Tokyo. The videos that got them in trouble contained no proprietary music and no pieces of animation. It was just people dressed up in costumes. This has set kind of a nasty precedent. I'm not exactly a big fan of cosplay to begin with, and I don't believe the Angry Otaku is either, but 
This is kind of interesting oh, that... Oh, he was cosplaying as a douchebag that time you met him, remember? <laughs> is the Bluetooth headset the uh, the sign of douchebaggery? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you add the iPhone and the Segway, then that's uh, I believe triple the word score. Yeah, I believe the Bluetooth headset is the international sign of douchebaggery. <laughs> Why Dave Riley wears one whenever he's recording the podcast. Good luck. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, basically what this means is that TV Tokyo considers someone who is wearing an outfit that they created of a character that is in one of their shows bad enough copyright infringement to actually get banned on YouTube. As far as I can tell, the character is clearly TV Tokyo's. But what do you guys think? Is this something that a cause for concern that cosplay now is considered copyright violation? Well, he talks about kind of what brought this about. At New York Anime Festival, which I went to and did the report in the last thing that we released, I mentioned briefly that there were a lot of companies there, a lot of industry things going on. I probably forgot to mention at some point that there were a lot of Japanese companies there. In Mm -hmm. fact, I met the president of Bandai Visual (laughs) and I told him things. But during a lot of these business-only panels and events that I'd alluded to, they kind of all gave the statistics about, oh, this many things are getting downloaded and people are watching such and such off of YouTube. And what James basically said was that was the one lesson that the Japanese took back with them after that con, that the internet is why anime is not succeeding in America anymore, because everybody is downloading it instead of buying things. At least that's what they believe. Anything that is on the internet related to anime that belongs to you, you got to do something about it, because otherwise, people are not going to watch or purchase your show. I was reading um, an article on Gamma Sutra the other day, talking about um, one of the casual game companies, who out of the people that connected one of their some of their games and used it online for like the multiplayer and all, approximately like 90%. Of the people who connected and used it online had pirated or cracked copies. Mm-hmm. That's generally the rationale behind why TV Tokyo decided to do this. There was another website that tracks things that get pulled off of YouTube. It's like YouTube.com, I think is the name of it. Incidentally, TV Tokyo is number one as far mm-hmm. as getting things pulled off of YouTube is concerned. Yeah. TV Tokyo, they own the rights to uh, Naruto, right? Right. I mean, it's one thing, I can understand them wanting to pull their actual anime episodes and stuff like that, but I think it's kind of ridiculous for them to pull like, cosplay videos. Yeah, who's really going to watch the cosplay video and say, oh, I don't need to watch the show anymore, <laughs> yeah, now that I've seen the live-action costume equivalent? Yeah, really, I mean, most of the time, stuff like that more acts as advertising. People will see some of the fan stuff, and they'll be like, oh, what show is that? And then people will tell them, and then, you know, they might go watch it. Maybe they won't buy it, maybe they'll just download it, but they'll at least, you know, be aware of it, and then hopefully the company will get in a sale. The unfortunate problem with that is that your argument is sound, but the people who would just download anime, even like Region 1 DVD rips, use the exact same phrasing and the exact same argument to support why they do that. And so the companies and rights holders are going, la la la, I cannot hear you anymore, because Obviously, there is a big problem 
with the sales of anime. We've been talking about it and all the reasons. There's even been a additional development on that front. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I think what's happening is it's the result of some slightly flawed logic. Maybe the Japanese are thinking that every single download equals one lost sale. Which, which is not. Yeah. Not true. I can put up a link to the article that I was talking about, but that article, they also talked about what happened with when they started cracking down on some of the cracks and other exploits that people use to pirate their software. Mm-hmm. What happened with the decrease in downloads and the increase in sales? And it definitely demonstrates that not every download or every pirated copy was equal to a sale because they definitely saw that they did not get as many sales. It was something like for every thousand people they cut off from downloading it illegally, one of those people bought it. Something it was, like that. Yeah. It was some like insanely out-of-proportion ratio. Well, here's the other thing that James went into on the subject of that, is the fact that anime cons are kind of a skewed demographic. When the Japanese right. people look at American anime convention attendees, and they think, wow, one person in costume, that's a super dedicated fan. For every one person in costume, there must be five casual people waiting to buy the show. No, not no, not really. The people in America are kind of just, at this point, viewing dressing up in the costume as kind of the default thing to do mm-hmm. to show your support of the show. Not even buying the show, it's necessarily. It's more like the amount of people that dress up doesn't even necessarily reflect all of those people even own the show. Full Metal Alchemist is the best example. All the billion Edward Elrics and Alphonses and such, and you look at the sales for Full Metal Alchemist, and they weren't super great. Everyone just watched on TV. Look at how many people are probably going to dress up like Lucky Star characters. But yeah, anyway, you weren't done, Clarissa. <laughs> I just had to cut in with that. On the subject of that argument that every download is a lost sale, I mean, I think I'm hoping that we're going to start to see more articles like that one on Gamma Suture because it very clearly demonstrates that that's not the case. It does show that them cracking down on the piracy did increase their sales somewhat, so it was effective, but it definitely proves that you're not necessarily going to get all of those people to buy your stuff if you stop them from pirating it. That's actually a pretty sad situation because, I mean, then what do you do? Like, well, obviously, they probably aren't assuming they can stop all, but they're probably yeah. thinking that, oh, maybe of the people who pirated it, 30% would have bought it otherwise. There's some number that yeah. even 30% is high. Still, they got to do something. The thing is, of course, people, if they don't have to pay money for it outside of whatever they're paying for their internet bill, if they don't have to pay any money for it and all it takes them is the time to download it, of course they're going to be willing to download and watch things that they wouldn't be willing to spend money on, especially not anime, which tends to be a little higher priced than a lot of other things. Or anime, which tends to suck a little more, like most everything. Even American television shows, most people who watch American television shows don't go out and buy the DVDs of all the shows they watch. Exactly. I even forgot to mention this during the New York Anime Fest con report, but that was actually a point that was brought up during that Art of Reviewing Anime panel, is that a lot of the TV shows that you see on TV now, they're not really meant to be collected and one for the ages. No. Some of the shows that you go out and buy on DVD in America, as far as anime is concerned, is like the anime equivalent of if someone were to take every episode of the dog whisperer and sell it <laughs> at a premium $50 box set yeah. per season. Hey, I really want to see the collected box set of every episode of Cops from 1987 <laughs> till today. Oh, 
god. Oh, Every episode of Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, I mean, I'm in manga. I think a lot of these companies, it's not that I'm not sympathetic to them at all. They just vastly overestimate the value of their products. Yeah, it's, I understand it's got to be hard for them that they've worked on this stuff and to see people pirating it. But yeah, at some point, you've got to, as a company, you've got to sit down and realize, all right, look, we make disposable pop culture entertainment, all right? This is stuff that a lot of people, they're just going to watch it, and they're not necessarily going to buy it and want to keep it forever and ever and ever. You know, yes, maybe the super mega hardcore fans are going to, but a lot of the, you know, as the audience gets wider, which they want, then you're going to get a lot of people who just aren't going to buy it. And the other thing is, like, sometimes I feel like there's a, a struggle going on right now. Like, people talk a lot about entitlement part of the fans, and I definitely think that that, is a factor. I'm not going to say that it doesn't exist, but I think that there's kind of a tension at this point between like entitlement on the part of the consumers and entitlement on the part of the companies. I'm sympathetic to the companies, but at the same time, like to me, no company is really entitled to people giving them money for things. If you make a good product and if you are good at selling it and you price it properly and everything, then, yeah, people might buy it. But as somebody who's selling something, even if it's art or entertainment, you're not entitled to people giving you their money. Unless you sell insurance. But I think a lot of companies, I don't know, sometimes it seems like they have this attitude of, like, every anime fan should be buying all of our shows because they just should be. They owe it to us. No, that's not how it works. I don't know. It's If you were on the company's end and you found this out, what really can you do? Do you just kind of throw up your arms and be like, I guess there's nothing we can do because we can't, obviously not all of those people are going to buy this product. So at what point do we start cracking down and annoying well, people with that? And at what point do we say, well, this is about as much as we can really hope to control? And that's interesting because there's a balance. One of the problems with a lot of the crackdowns on piracy, especially where it's involving DRM and other kinds of protection, is that the companies that tend to get really hardcore with it you tend to end up with DRM or copy protection that does really bad things to people's systems or that is inconvenient. And so the only person that it really hurts is the legitimate consumers. Because the people that are going to pirate it are going to wait a little while until somebody comes up with a way to remove the DRM. And then they're just going to download the clean copy. We saw this happen in video games with things like Star Force, where... People who legitimately paid $50 for this video game could not run it. But the people who got the cracked pirated version with the copy protection removed were able to run the phone. Yeah, it's a growing problem as far as striking that balance between what is a reasonable countermeasure to protect your property and what is just going way too far. I think a lot of people are thinking that the pulling of these cosplay videos is probably a little on the too far side yeah. of things. Let me play devil's advocate here, because there's actually another news item that just came out, at least of the time of this recording. We always talk about how anime sales are down, and DVD market is kind of not doing so hot. Well, the numbers are out, and officially, sales of anime DVDs in North America dropped by over 20% in 2007. You have to understand, that's after the 20% or the 19% drop in 2006. So it was a 19% to 20% drop one year, then another 20% drop after that. And so yeah. I think if you do the math, sales are down 40% since 2003. Yeah. 
I think it's even worse than that. Be doing the math wrong to set it that way. But the point is, what they said is anime sales have lost something like fifty, hundred million dollars, hundred fifty right. million dollars there about there. But the total size of the North American anime market is only about two hundred seventy-five to three hundred million dollars. That's about mm-hmm. what the size of the market is. And so when you lose twenty percent of that or forty percent since two thousand three, then that's a sizable diminishment in yeah. the amount of sales. And this has to have been the result of something. And some of it can be the suck factor. That's what I talk about. A lot of these shows that are releasing are garbage. But another part of it is that in the last several years, there has been a lot more internet broadband penetration. A lot more people do have these things. It's easier than ever to find stuff. Mm-hmm. That factors in. But the one thing that I saw was interesting is that manga is still doing okay. I mean, we've talked about that before. But when they listed, uh, this is for obviously from ICV2, they're the only people who ever get numbers. They listed the top 10 manga for 2007, and the top 10 anime for 2007. And it happens to be shockingly similar to the top 10 manga for 2006, and the top anime for 2006. Guess what was number one anime, 2007? Naruto. No, Naruto really? is four. Hmm. Number one is Dragon Ball Z. Oh, okay. Well, it was going to be either, that was going to be the second guess. So. Okay. What's number two? More Dragon Ball Z? No. Dragon Ball Z is only there once. That counts as all Dragon Ball Z. Oh, okay. So it's all not Dragon like... Ball stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, One Piece. Pokemon is number three. One Piece is not even on there. Hmm. Keep in mind, it's 2007. And so the Funimation release of One Piece, which is actually good, wasn't really on the shelf at the time. Number two is Advent Children. Still. Advent Children, huh? Well, that got re-released. A $40 disc of a show that you've already seen sells more than an anime series that you haven't seen. So, so number three is Pokemon. Number four is Naruto. Five, Afro Samurai. Number six, Howl's Moving Castle. Bleach is seven. Eight is Robotech the Shadow Chronicles. Okay. Which is not really anime, so... But. Not really, but it's released by Funimation, and, you know, they count it. Mm-hmm. Nine is My Neighbor Totoro. And number 10 is the second part of Karis, Karis the Revelation, which is about 500 times better than the first part. Top 10 manga, pretty much the same old story. Number one, Naruto. Two, Fruits Basket. Death Note's number three. Bleach is number four. Five, Kingdom Hearts. The manga? Yeah, yeah, the manga for Kingdom Hearts. Pokemon is six. The only surprise on here is seven for me. Vampire Knight. Do you know anybody who reads Vampire Knight? Never even really heard of this, so... Yeah, not Vampire Knight, the Namco rail shooter game. Right, right. This is Vampire Knight with a K. Eight is Full Metal Alchemist, the manga. Nine is Absolute Boyfriend, which I guess somebody out there likes enough. Yeah, but you would toss it. It's all the same dire bad things, and Loveless was ten. But the point is, is that the same properties that were top-selling... You know, a year or two ago, or even for a few years, Dragon Ball Z, how long has that been popular for? That's been number one for ages. So apparently the new intellectual property can't get in there. Other than, like, short-lived things, like Afro Samurai for the moment is just that one thing they might make the TV series. And to be honest, Afro Samurai was, like, scientifically engineered to be a hit. It aired on Spike TV, which is a very widely distributed network. It had Samuel Jackson in it. It had every single element in it that would sell to an audience that'll buy a DVDs like that. Even though I think Afro Samurai sucked. The point is, is, what is the cause of these newer shows not getting traction? Is it that everyone is downloading the newer shows? Is it that these newer shows just aren't 
as good? Is it that they're flooding the market with too many things such that the consumer is now overwhelmed by choice and so they just stick with the thing they know in their mind was good? Yeah. What's still good? Oh, well, I don't know, but hey, the new volume in Naruto's out. I can get that. I wonder if the spread of them selling is the same as it was the previous year. And that you mean like I want- the difference between number one and number ten? That's what I mean, yeah. Like, if it's the same or if it is now sort of compressed, perhaps. Because I imagine that it might be the same, but if it is compressed, then maybe people are still largely buying the popular stuff that they know, but maybe they're, they're spreading their money out of it. I don't know. Well, the rate of growth for manga, at least, is slowing it down. And they even said straight up in the article that the major problem facing both publishers and the retailer side of things is just too many new titles. At least 33 volumes of manga a week. And I was talking to Mike Tool about this. Anime is, like, even worse. I mean, we were looking at, like, one month worth of things, and there were 50 things that came out in just that month. And each one of those things needs shelf space, and there's not enough shelf space. Yeah. Maybe the titles that we're interested in may vary from fan to fan, but I'm imagining that the percentage of interest among those titles is probably roughly constant. Hmm. I think it's a combination of a lot of things, really. Like, I think that that's part of it, and I think you make a good point when you say, like, there's so many things, and a lot of people don't really know what most of them are, but they know what Naruto is, I think, things like that. And I think that ties into some of what I think is a big part of the problem, which is that I think if they tried to run the American television industry almost entirely on DVD sales, I think you would see probably the same things that you're seeing with the anime industry. I'm sure there would be a lot of these things that that people would not be buying because they didn't have the chance to see it on television first. And there's a lot you're going to get a lot of the people who would watch on television, but they're just not going to buy it, period. And so you'd lose all the advertising revenue from running it on TV. And so I think that's a big part of the problem with anime is just that they're trying to run it almost solely through DVD sales, and I really just don't know that that's a model that works. I mean, sure, there are a lot of people that are able to download episodes through BitTorrent or watch stuff on YouTube, but I don't know that it's a replacement. And the other problem is that the anime companies aren't getting any money from that, whereas television broadcasts they can get advertising revenue and other things so i think of course, as we noted in the previous show not 64b but 64a the growing problem of tv shows or tv stations not willing to air anime because it just doesn't get ratings at right. all so people well, aren't even willing to watch it for free basically and does that tie into the fact that everybody's already downloaded death note who wants to watch death note okay but here's the thing most of the anime that runs on cartoon network especially that simple adult swim like death note it runs, like, really late at night, or, like, only on the weekends. It's really very good time slots. What are the ratings like for some of the other regular shows? Like, okay, a lot of the Adult Swim stuff does pretty well there, but is it the same audience? Is the audience for Death Note the same audience of people as Aquatine Hunger Force? Absolutely not. No. Mm-mm. So maybe it's just a matter of that's not a good time slot for the audience that they need to get. Death Note can't really run during the day. Well, it's not really, like, bloody, or... And there's not really There's still a lot of people dying. Yeah, there is, but... I mean, it could just run somewhat earlier in the evening. This thing is, like, the new animation dub of One Piece is good. 
But oh yeah, yeah, we know that definitely should not be running where it it's runs running on now. Saturday right. night, late on Saturday night. That is not the right time slot for that show. Of course, it's not going to pull like a big audience. That show needs to be on like in the afternoons on weekdays. Case in point, Dragon Ball Z again. Dragon Ball Z was on American TV for years in syndication. Nobody gave a damn about it. It wasn't until it got on Cartoon Network. It was originally on on Sunday morning. Sunday morning, I know. I'd watch, I'd tune into that. Like 7 a.m. on Sunday, Dragon Ball Z would be on. It wasn't until they just threw it on the Cartoon Network that everybody discovered it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's this weird chicken and egg situation. It all sort of feeds into each other. And we've been talking about this for months and months and we'll talk about it some more. I know you've talked a lot about the fact that like, okay, well, obviously, the market is shifting and technology is creating a different kind of market and companies are going to have to learn how to work with that new market. So there's a lot of problems with anime getting on regular broadcast television. What I've been kind of thinking is I'm thinking about the number of people that watch anime on video streaming sites like YouTube or Crunchyroll or whatever. And I'm thinking, all right, if they can't get a lot of anime on television in order to get advertising revenue, I think maybe what they need to start doing is providing streaming free access to anime, or like maybe like a very, very low like monthly subscription fee where you pay that fee and then you can watch anything on the site. Hmm. Basically, we need Hulu for anime is what you're saying. Yeah, the people can still watch the show for free or for really, really cheap, and then the companies will get advertising on the site, and they can get advertising revenue, whether it's, I mean, click-through is pretty abysmal, so maybe it'll just be page views or something. I think, actually, Astro Boy is on Hulu, the manga video, 1980 Astro Boy, Mm -hmm. but not sure what the rationale for some shows being on there and some shows not. I'm guessing it's one of those, oh, well whatever large network station made their money off of regular advertising, and this is just extra money. I'm really interested to see Mm. if we can find any kind of numbers for how well the um, the anime episodes on iTunes are doing. Like, if there's any kind of indication, are they doing well? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure that's what the whole Writer's Guild strike (laughs) was about. But But. I guess uh, as far as other news goes, we've always talked about the possibility of we do our anime con reports, and we talk about how a lot of them are populated primarily by teenagers, usually younger teens, often unsupervised by their parents. People often wonder why are there weird, crazy rules? Is something going to happen one of these days at anime cons? Because all this weird stuff is going on there. And uh, apparently, something did happen. There was a convention in Texas called IkiCon, which uh, was a terrible convention by all accounts. As far as staff being inept, and they may not be back next year. How long ago did this happen? Oh, it must have been this past weekend. Like, let's say, if we're recording this on the 16th, it must have happened the 9th, the previous weekend. Okay. This convention happened out in, uh, I think it was Austin, Texas. And what happened was, a guy at this convention attempted to kidnap a girl, a 15-year-old girl. Name hasn't been released because she's a minor. But as the story in the newspaper reads, the girl told police a man grabbed her by the neck while she was standing outside the fourth floor elevators. She said she was choked and dragged down three hallways to a doorway that led to a stairwell in a parking garage. She fought with the attacker the entire time. She was only let go when another person was spotted in the stairwell. Police arrested the guy, a 22-year-old guy, not an old guy, carrying a military ID card. 
And so they're charging him with third-degree felony kidnapping. Did he have anything to do with that girl, or was it just, like, as far as they can tell, a random thing? Probably just as best as they can tell is a random thing, but, I mean, it's it's really bad news for the girl. It's really bad news for uh, this convention. It, I yeah. mean, it's really bad news for anime cons in general. I mean, people are under the assumption that their kids will be safe at these places, even though a lot of crazy things go on, and I'm all for more parents supervising their minors at these things. I don't know where they get the idea that these things are perfectly okay. I mean, is it... Because it's about cartoons. That's what I was thinking. It's like, it's just about cartoons, so therefore, anything they can leave their kids for three days at these things. Well, I guess they figure, like, there's a lot of other teenagers there, like... Usually, if you send your teenager to a party, there's a lot of other teenagers there usually want to have some sort of chaperone. Yeah. Yeah, But it's also, like, a public... Yeah, it's in a public area. It's not, like, somebody's house. Yeah. Or something like that. So maybe they figure there's enough supervision. If people start thinking that anime cons are not safe for their teenage children to attend, anime cons are over. I mean... Yeah. Think of the amount of people who go to conventions and the amount of people that are that age. Pretty terrifying... But hopefully this is just a one-off thing. But think about it. Anime cons are a place full of teenagers, largely unsupervised, a lot of whom have access to alcohol one way or another, a lot of whom are wearing not a whole lot of clothing. Depending on because if they're, they're cosplaying in, or whatever. If they're in costuming, if they're at the rave, maybe if they're gothel leases or whatever, you can see that there is the potential for something to go wrong. I'm and actually amazed that it took this long for something yeah, to happen. Yeah, usually at a, the dance, it's pretty common sight to see the paramedics come and take somebody away, either because they got water dehydration or they drank too much and got alcohol poisoning. But in the case of uh, Ikikon, it seems like it's this small convention, hadn't been around for very long. Staffers kind of didn't really know what they were doing so much. And this is not an uncommon story. I mean, in Florida, there's like 12 conventions alone that you could say the same thing applies to. We've heard of incidents that have happened at the Florida conventions, but they just never got widely reported. I can't say I've heard of, you know, a kidnapping at a Florida convention. I don't think anything that bad has happened here. According to Dave Merrill, he says the issue is not young people. It's not the alcohol or the skimpy costumes. The problems are when the con attracts like 9,000 people, but plans for 900. Or when the staff has been doing the cons for so long, they forget about the attendees who don't understand the rules, or when they fail to schedule things that keep people occupied during those times, or when they fail to check badges, and that leads to lots of people just getting in who shouldn't be there, because they're only there to cause trouble. At least that's Dave's perspective of it, as a guy who's chaired a con and done a lot of convention staffing for many, many years. There's always going to be way more attendees than there are volunteers and staff. And so I guess the only solution is, well, I don't know the solution. I'm not even going to offer a solution because then that would suggest, oh, if you have such good solutions, why don't you volunteer for a con? And that's never going to happen. Anyway, hmm. that's all I got. Okay. Uh, yeah, like you get back to me. Yeah, right. Anyway, I'm listening to the podcast where you... Lagan, Lagan, Tangan, Tapa, Gurin, Lagan. Listen to how they say it. I love you guys. It bothers me. I'm about to listen to it, but I'm like, oh, this is great. They're going to review it. This is fantastic. And then she starts off, and then she says, like, lagging or logging. Dude, it's Lagan. Lagan. It's two parts. L-A-H space G-A-H-N. Lagan. You get it? Man, nothing. Ugh. You know, I knew they don't give a damn, you know, Radovan, who cares what that felt like, you know, who cares? Lagan, it means something to me, and it means something to them, because it's pronounced right in the show, 
if you watched it, you didn't pay attention. So anyway, love you guys, love the show. Kevin, I'm uh, calling you from West Palm Beach, Florida. Okay, bye. Coming up on episode 50 of R5 Central. And now, from the director of Battle Royale 2, and you can kind of hear me say, oh. Now he's finally gone Super Saiyan, where he essentially turns into a giant flaming furry. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take care of this. Next time, Final Action Part 1. Kimimo, wake up! Back when I was doing... The con report for the New York Anime Festival 2007. I mentioned that I met the fine folks at Vertical Inc. And I said that I'd be reviewing more of their titles in the shows to come. Well, I'm going to make good on that because I have got in front of me their latest release of Osamu Tezuka manga called Moo. Spelled M-W. And I'll go into why that is in a minute. But before I start, I just thought I'd read a quote by Osamu Tezuka, a very famous quotation of his kind of his message you often see this placed somewhere at the end or beginning of a lot of the works of his that have been published it's a pretty short message quote what i try to appeal through my works is simple this opinion is just a simple message that follows love all the creatures love everything that has life i've been trying to express this message in every one of my works though it has taken different forms like the presentation of nature the blessing of life the suspicion of too much science-oriented civilization, anti-war, and so on. It turns out this is actually a partial version of the quote. The full version of the quote is actually something a little more like this. What I try to appeal through my works is simple. The opinion is just a simple message that follows. Love all the creatures. Love everything that has life. I have been trying to express this message in every one of my works except for Moo. Really? Because of everything... That Osama Tezuka has ever written. This is kind of like the anti Tezuka book. It even says it right there on the spine of the book when you read the blurb. It's considered his most dark writings. It definitely is. We can go into why that is, but just for some background information, I mean, obviously, we've talked about Osamu Tezuka quite a bit on this podcast, and we will continue to do so. If you want to hear more, about all the amazing things that this guy has done, please go to our website at AnimeWorldOrder.com, click on the review index, and check out what we've said about Pluto, what we've said about Phoenix, what we've said about Otakiri Hito, and so on and so forth. On the subject of Otakiri Hito, that was also released by Vertical Inc., great release, and Moo is a very similar style of release. This is a hardcover book. It costs $25. You might think that's kind of expensive for manga, but bear in mind that this is nearly 600 pages long. Yeah, it's a pretty big book. When you think $25 of other manga, $25 would get you regularly two and a half books that are about 150 pages. So considering that it's a full story, self-contained, it's so many pages long, and it's hardcover, $25 is a really good value. And Otsukiri Hito sold much the same way. It's a paperback, though. And that's even longer. But this was also serialized in the exact same magazine as Otakiri Hito, big comic magazine. So this is a manga from 1976. What it's about, it's kind of a bizarre story, mainly about two characters. The main protagonist is a priest named Father Garai. He's a Catholic priest, like Christian priest, which isn't something you see very often in Japanese comics or animation, probably because 
there just aren't a whole lot of Christians in Japan. A lot of times when you watch anime and you see things with Christians in them, it's, it's ridiculous, ridiculous because... Onto Junction, Judge? Oh, I got Judge. I bought Judge <laughs> at the New York Anime Festival. Yeah, you said so. As a matter of fact. But this guy is a Catholic priest, and this takes place in Japan, this story. As you know, Japan has military bases on it. I don't know who these military bases belong to, but in the case of Mu, it belongs to a nation called Nation X. And Nation X has places named Kentucky, generals <laughs> named uh, MacArthur. I've heard of that place. Russian, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think yeah. it must be a Russian place. Mm -hmm. Tezuka is not a political guy. I mean, even though he does spend quite a bit of time saying, in so-and-so year, the United States dropped the nuclear bomb on Japan. And then at some point, he switches seamlessly into Nation X. So don't worry, this is a work of fiction. Iwao Garai, Iwao is his first name, he's a priest in Japan, and he has a relationship with another guy who is the main antagonist, and his name is Yuki, Michio Yuki. And I guess he's not really the antagonist so much as he's the Gekiga hero of Mu. <laughs> I mean, Mu is not Gekiga, it came out yeah. a little late. But mm -hmm. he contains all of the traits of the Gekiga hero. How many girls does he rape? About 50. Okay. The reason this story is called Mu is because these two characters, Garai and Yuki, in their youth, they ended up sneaking onto an American-owned facility on the islands of Japan where there was a horrible chemical weapon deployed that was called Mu. And this thing just killed people instantly within seconds an entire island of people dies but through circumstances they ended up living however yuki ended up being partially exposed to the gas and as a result of this it has made him completely deranged such that he has no concept of what is good and what is evil what is right and what is wrong and so he lives solely for revenge which makes him a gekiga hero all gekiga heroes want is revenge Revenge on the people who killed their woman. Revenge on the people who made them lose their MIT scholarship. Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> get heroes want revenge, and they're going to do whatever it takes to get revenge on these old middle-aged politicians and corporate fat cats who are responsible, damn it. Of course, the plot to revenge is never a straightforward, okay, I'm going to find this guy where he lives and get him. No, no. no. You're not allowed to do that when you're a Gekiga hero. In this case, you have to... Climb the corporate ladder of a bank, have all the women fall in love with you, rape them to death, or rape them until they love you. This happens about two or three times. Mm-hmm. That's Gekiga for you, yeah. I swear to God, I'm not exaggerating. He literally does no. rape people until they love him. Yuki is just the most despicable human being imaginable. Like, the very first thing we see him doing is kidnapping people, murdering the children that he's kidnapped... Just because, and then killing the people who brought the money and taking the money. So it'd be a hero in Chinese. Yes, hero in like uh, ancient China period piece drama. <laughs> That's what their heroes are in those stories: <laughs> raping women, killing people, being a thief and a scoundrel, and poisoning people to death, and so on and so forth. All of these things are a typical day's work for Yuki, since he knows Garai from their childhoods. He's always confessing his sins. To the priest. And the priest is a priest. He's not allowed to go to the cops because that's what you're allowed in confession. 
Yeah, that's the the right, idea behind yeah. confidentiality. Yeah. Right, and so Father Garai is tormented because this guy is going out and doing all these horrible, horrible things. He really isn't learning his lesson every time he says, no, you have to stop murdering people and wearing their skin or whatever it is like Buffalo Bill would do. <laughs> mm. And Yuki just doesn't care. He just doesn't give a shit. He just keeps on doing these things. And he's just, let me just flip to a random page. I guarantee you, Yuki will be doing something absolutely terrible. Okay, here we go. One of the girls in Father Garai's flock, so to speak, she's been crippled. She can't walk. And after years of counseling and help and encouragement, she's finally able to walk again without the need of crutches or braces or anything like that. However, if she were to come under emotional duress, it would undo all the years of hard work we've become. So Yuki, just to be an asshole, starts giving her a hard time over things. Because this girl loves the priest, which is another subplot. I think he also does it particularly because she was getting very close to Father Godai. Of course, that's unacceptable for a reason I'll go into in a second. But because of that, because she's in love with the priest and that's not allowed... Yuki just starts to torment her, and so naturally she ends up being hospitalized and unable to walk again. And she falls in love with him. And she, yes, she falls in love with Yuki, because uh. he's such a jerk. This <laughs> is the kind of thing that goes on constantly, and Yuki is just absolutely horrible, and you're just waiting for him to get his comeuppance. And you keep waiting. <laughs> and waiting. And waiting. But the reason that Garai hasn't reached his breaking point. The reason that they bonded together from youth is because they're both gay. Garai, you know, obviously, he's a priest. Ha ha ha, he molests boys. But as a kid, Garai was a delinquent, would kidnap people and do all sorts of terrible things, and kidnapped Yuki because he looked like a girl. And they bring this up repeatedly, that he has a family that is involved in kabuki theater. Yeah, his brother is a famous onagata. And he's basically his twin brother, and so Yuki uses this to great effect because when he murders his female victims, he then proceeds to dress up like them and impersonate them. And he can fool their parents because that's part of kabuki training. Or having a brother (laughs) with kabuki training, anyway. Wow, this guy's a really great guy. It, It runs in the family. Like, there's one part where he meets a girl... It gives her an injection that will cause her vagina to constrict incredibly just so he can get his rape on that much better. And as a side effect, the drug will kill her. And he does this just for the heck of it to get his rocks off. And then he proceeds to dress up as her for like a quarter of the book. Hmm. But it's all to get closer to her dad, who is in some way involved with the terrible scheme that made him into the monster that he is today. It's actually kind of interesting because when you talk about the Gekki hero thing, like, this so much like a lot of these main Gekki characters. And when you're reading it, it kind of makes you, like, think, wow, like, why would I be rooting for these guys down these other books? Before Light Yagami came on the scene with Death Note, <laughs> there was Yuki. And similar mm. to Death Note, there is a character in this Because Yuki is going around killing all these people and doing all these kidnappings and the cops are totally stumped, they bring in the ace detective (laughs) who um, is a weirdo and looks really bizarre and is always on to Yuki, but he can't really quite prove it. Does he look bizarre in kind of a Tezuka cartoonish way? Well, we've talked about in previous installments of AWO when we've done Tezuka's reviews that Tezuka, having grown up in Takarazuka and seen the famous theater troupe, 
from the city of the same name that he was a very fond of using what we call the star system Mm -hmm. in which that he would have a stock set of character designs that he would reuse from title to title right that is not the case in moo almost all the characters except for shun sakuban uh mr mustachio and uh, the old astro boy all the characters are just locally contained to this his stock characters don't appear and when shun sakuban does appear he appears just to get horribly maimed and brutalized when I say horribly maimed, I mean penis bitten off by wild dogs hmm. and shot. Yeah. That's what happens uh, to this dude. Incidentally, the dog belongs to Yuki, and because he was exposed to the moo gas, he doesn't have the sense to know right and wrong to say, hey, do not have sex with dogs. He's pretty messed up. He is astoundingly messed up. Organic brain syndrome, ahoy! It ends up being Yuki keeps doing bad things and Father Garai keeps getting pushed to the limit, but damn it, he just can't help tapping that ass every other (laughs) chapter. Damn you, God! Why must you make this man turn into a woman and seduce me? There aren't really very many female characters in this. They kind of exist to show up, fall in love with Yuki, and or get murdered by him. Yeah. Other than that... What's kind of interesting is how similar Yuki in this book is to the Rock or Nokudo incarnation in Alabaster, which I'm really hoping Vertical will release over here. In Alabaster, Rock appears as a character I believe he only referred to as FBI, because he's an FBI agent. He also is a complete narcissistic psychopath who cross-dresses quite frequently in order to trick people, and who murders people without remorse, and so on and and so forth. It's kind of interesting that they're so similar. Like, I don't know if there was some reason in particular that Tezuka kind of explored these similar things twice in both of these series. But the other thing that's kind of interesting is he talked about Tezuka's quote about love, and that Moo being like, the most depressing and sort of anti-Tezuka. And I agree that Mu is definitely really, really harsh, but I think something that's kind of fascinating is the question of whether Yuki is capable of love for Father Godai at all. I don't think he actually loves him. I think he just is very manipulative of everybody around him, including Father Godai, and he knows what it takes to keep him from going to the cops to keep him from confessing his sins. He knows that he can stretch him to this limit as long as he reigns himself in slightly, and by reigns himself in, I mean dicks him. But everything Yuki does is Hmm. very coldly calculated. We see in his day job at the bank that he acts like the perfect ladies' man, the perfect gentleman, the ideal employee, but he's really just a sociopath. I I won't deny that definitely he does behave that way, but... I don't know, sometimes I get the sense that there's something different about the way that he interacts with Garai. I mean, he definitely does shitty things to the father, and he definitely manipulates him. But at the same time, like, he also doesn't dispose of the father when otherwise I think he probably would with somebody else. Whereas in Alabaster, FBI, there's not even that one relationship that maybe he has i think the closest evidence for the claim that you've got is the fact that there is sort of a rashomon-esque point of view discrepancy as far as the flashback as to how all this came about one as told by father garai one as told by yuki that's one of his rape victims and 
they differ very slightly as far as how they became to love one another. Right. Father Garai seemed to make his story seem like he forced himself on Yuki. And uh, Yuki, it seemed a little more consensual. Yeah. At least from his telling of the story. What was your question, Gerald? You had one? I was wondering if Tezuka was writing this in reaction to all of the Gekiga work, or if he was trying to create his own sort of Gekiga work, because a lot of the work that he wrote in the 70s was... This is more mid-70s, mid-to-late-70s. But the other ones that we've Otakiri done Hito are... is very similar. You mentioned the art style being much, much more realistic. A lot of times they'd have a big detailed close-up of the deranged guy. And Otsukiri Hito actually had a similar character who is... He was basically our hero and a good guy, except when he'd go crazy and rape people because he was deranged. Mm-hmm. Imagine Yuki is kind of like the opposite of that. He's crazy and he rapes people and he's deranged, but every once in a while he seems like he might be okay. Mm. <laughs> Except he's not. Yeah. And similarly, the art style in Mu is closer to Kirihito than it is to Phoenix or Astro Boy mm-hmm. or Next World or the mm-hmm. like. There is a lot of times where Yuki just suddenly stops or excuses himself and goes in the restroom and looks himself in the mirror and he suddenly it's very detailed drawing of the crazy look in his eyes. Yeah. Tezuka was saying that he wrote a lot of these things in reaction to the times and to society. And it makes me wonder what was going on in society that would possess him to write something like that with a protagonist that is so unlikable. It's very difficult to say because of what happened to Yuki. We don't know exactly what would have happened to him if he had grown up normally without being exposed to the move. Actually, he would have been a kabuki superstar, like his twin brother. (laughs) Yeah, so it seems to me that the indication is that Yuki probably suffers from some form of organic brain syndrome, a.k.a. pseudo-psychopathic personality disorder, as a result of brain damage from exposure to the move. But even in the manga itself, they question... That's only so much of an excuse for... Well, certainly this is more exaggerated than generally the real-life cases. Although, if you look at some of the real-life cases, they do think that you can undergo some pretty drastic personality changes and behavioral changes as a result of brain damage, especially the frontal lobe, because that's where a lot of your rational understanding of right and wrong is kind of housed. It seems to posit that Yuki is not necessarily evil just because he is that way something particular happened to him oh yeah it's definitely a case where they showed him in his childhood as being kind of a a shy kid who wasn't really a malicious sort of person it's true the exposure to the horrible chemical weapon turned him into the monster that he is however it's not like how adolf by tezuka was where you saw an extensive portion where one of the characters named adolf was a good kid until he became a Nazi, and then you start seeing him do all the horrible atrocities as a Nazi. Right. And, all right, he's doing bad things, but you sort of understand, like, oh, well, can I truly, totally hate this guy because I saw what happened to him? Yuki doesn't really have that sort of a character arc. He's kind of just a depraved person, and the things he does are so terrible. One of the first things that he does to get a promotion at his job... He denies a loan to a guy who really needs the money. Very insurance company style, like in America. Mm-hmm. But this manga goes the extra step to have this guy begging and pleading with Yuki, saying, hey, if I don't get this money, I'm going to have to commit suicide because I won't be able to provide for my family. And if I can't do it, then my whole family has to kill themselves. And Yuki's like, oh, screw you, go away. And then a few pages later, 
they show this guy's family getting ready to kill himself, including his two little kids who yeah. take like fatal poison and go to sleep and wish we can be angels now. End of chapter, and they're never seen again. Yeah. Holy shit. What? The story just keeps going, because like, yep, he did that. These people are dead now. Right. Just because of not even a step for his revenge. Cause it's a- That's just flavor for his character, sounds like. Yeah, it's yeah. really just to, to drive home the craziness of it. It's just nihilistic. Given that it's a character who is a Catholic priest, there's not really a God's going to come in and punish this guy for his wickedness or anything. It's just, this happens. The people who committed the horrible act don't really get that much bad things happening to him, and this guy who's doing all these horrible things don't really get that much things happening to him. And the people who are mostly good and innocent bystanders all get more or less screwed over big time in this book. I recommend it. I enjoy it very much, but I'm not sure if something might have happened to Tezuka's life <laughs> to make him think, man, things really suck right now. Fuck the world. Because um, it's not like there's the weird sight gags or the weird jokes with the exception of one panel in the entire 600 pages or whatever, where there's a goofy joke to lighten up the mood, which is what most people say is the bad thing about Tezuka, not just in America, but with modern fans uh, in Japan as well. That's not really in this. There's not very much cosmic elements or high sci-fi stuff. There's no metaphysical ruminations going on about the nature of existence like in Phoenix. Even in Otakiri Hito, which spends a lot of time talking about human rights, and even like Otakiri Hito is much more silly than Mu is. And Otakiri Hito was not that silly. Do you think that it's better than Apollo's song? Which... I think it's better than Apollo's song. Better Apollo's song, well, it's just like personal opinion. Because Apollo's song was a mediocre Tezuka. I mean, this one is just, it's so unique. And it's also... It seems as bleak as Apollo's song. Apollo's song... When we were saying it was bleak, I was only half joking. I mean, I believe it's bleak, but it's not meant to be. This is meant to be. Mm. And so I'm not really joking. It's a serious story with very tormented people and very uh, messed up folks. Yeah. There's really nobody to root for as far as the story goes. I mean, other than the detective, but he only just shows up to kind of be like the sort of Greek chorus to Father Garai saying, oh, who is the worst sinner? The guy who's doing the sins or the guy who knows and does nothing to stop the evil. That's kind of what is the main theme of this story. I do recommend people check this one out. I mean, it's by Vertical. They haven't let us down yet as far as releasing things that are bad. Pretty much everything there, at least manga-wise, has been excellent. This is no exception to that. Mm-hmm. You can actually find this in comic book stores, in bookstores, but a lot of times... Since it is a big book, it's too large to fit in with the rest of the manga. Plus, it's a hardcover book. It maybe takes up the space of two, maybe three typical manga titles would on a shelf. You might not find it in the manga section. Yeah. It might be in a slightly bigger shelf. If anything, you can always order it. These books are not out of print. More people need to read stuff by Vertical because it's great stuff. If you're concerned about Tezuka because you know you think it's too old looking or you think it's too cartoony or too goofy... This doesn't really have that. You are going to have to accept, though, that it is a manga written in the 70s that prominently features a whole lot of gay people in it and people doing gay things. And the understanding of homosexuality in the 1970s is probably not where it would be today. I mean, even in the 1980s when I grew up, comedians, stand-up comics, uh, making fun of gay people, that was socially acceptable. Tesco wasn't trying to offend anyone, I would say. 
but well, most of what we see comes through Father Garai, who is a Catholic priest who has a huge amount of religious-based guilt right. and conflict over his homosexuality, which is only compounded by the fact that the person he's involved with is Yuki, who is a horrible sociopath. So it's really hard to tell whether any of the portrayal of homosexuality in here is really kind of what Tezuka thinks, or whether it's really just the fact that Father Garai isn't exactly ready to come out of the closet and be proud of himself. I mean... Granted, at no point does Father Garai really talk about how terrible a thing it is to be gay. Well, he just denies it. Like, he yeah, talks he's, he's... about Yuki turning into a woman right. and seducing him. It's like he doesn't even acknowledge I wouldn't say that Tezuka was intentionally trying to make anyone mad. I mean, there are parts where they go to, like, the secret gay sex club. <laughs> it's basically like how Jack Chick would imagine a secret gay sex club to be. Oh boy. Yeah, it's it's one, one so of those. So he probably do. chances are Tezuka didn't get this from like gay friends of his. He probably got the ideas, concepts of gay people secondhand. Yeah, his basic idea was like, okay, these people are persecuted by society and they have to keep this secret from everybody they know, and it breaks them up inside. That's about the extent to which Tezuka will go with it. He's not really vindictive towards them or anything like that but at the same time you look at some of the things in a modern perspective and you might think yeah okay this is incredibly odd and if it were to happen today it might raise more of a fuss of course maybe i didn't really notice it because the book was i was so distracted by the overwhelming misogyny on display this isn't misogyny this is misanthropy clarissa this is every human being at all period Mm -hmm. it's just like well gogo 13 is not misogynistic it's miss everyone other than gogo 13 <laughs> that's true it's true but the thing is like you say there are no important female characters right there are no female characters that are there for any other reason it's not that yuki doesn't murder or otherwise mess up male characters it's just that both of our focus characters are men So I guess maybe that makes it seem like even though it's not like women are the only ones being victimized, it creates a little more of a disproportionate feeling. I will say that this book probably has the most mind-blowing twist lesbian surprise I've ever seen. That's the other thing I think that probably hints at Tezuka's actual feelings on the subject, because I really like that part, actually. If you want to read a good suspense sort of drama, I would say this is a definitely a good start. There are times where I kind of feel like it might have been a little redundant. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it could have been shorter. But at the same time, we've got the whole thing here. This thing was originally serialized like you know, a couple chapters at a time. Yeah. As long as you understand uh, what you're getting into. I think you can actually read a pretty decent length preview on Vertical's website. That's www.vertical-inc.com. Check it out on the website. See if you like it. I don't think you're really going to find the scanlation groups <laughs> ripping up their hardcover copies of Moo to scan it and put it up on the internet. If they did, I'd be pretty angry about it. If you liked Kirihito, I would say Moo is definitely up your alley. All right, before anyone asks me why am I running this weird voicemail completely unedited, it's because I'm not entirely sure whether or not it's a hilarious gimmick or if it's completely real. Judge for yourself. Hey, Anime World Order. Uh, 
I, I sent an email to you guys a while back discussing uh, the anime uh, Maple Town. Daryl said he never saw it. And just wondering, I don't know if uh, Clarissa or Gerald's ever seen it. It was on Nick Jr. a long time ago. But that show kind of brought something up, so let's see. Because two guys who worked on that show are, um, and I'm going to butcher these names. Kunai Hikyo Akuhara and Juchai Sato. And uh, they uh, worked on, I don't know if Sato actually worked on it, but Sailor Moon, which I know he did. He was director of Sailor Moon. And Revolutionary Girl, Revolutionary Girl Utena. I know, I know the idea of actually reviewing uh, Sailor Moon is frightening. Oh, wow, it's four o'clock, and it's like four, four a.m., four a.m. or something. Yeah, but the reviewing Sailor Moon—that's just frightening because it's ridiculous long. It's so fucking long. And also, um, you mentioned. On one of your early shows, it was like episode eight. You mentioned something called pigeon, something called pigeon blood, and I was wondering what the hell this thing is. Yeah. And uh, I have play, I've also found some ways to watch. I've also found someone has posted on, on a web on a website, uh, Belladonna. So I'm gonna be watching that. <laughs> I think you can know what website it's been posted on. By the way, uh, Empty Geist rocks! Ignoring the fact that he talks like how I would talk if this recording weren't edited, the reason I'm not sure if it's a gimmick is because I am not certain whether or not someone seriously asks about Mapletown, which I have heard of, I just have not seen, as well as shows like Pigeon Blood, Belladonna, and Empty Geist in the same message. But to refresh everyone's memory, Pigeon Blood is horrible, horrible, sick hentai pornography that is the most gory, horrible thing ever. And Gerald refused to watch it, so Clarissa had to watch it all for him to get the funny clips out of it. But they aren't really funny. They're just really horrible and gory and gross. I know Otaku Generation always talks about, oh, we watched Bondage Game and that cleared out the room. Pigeon Blood puts Bondage Game to shame. I've never seen it. I've just seen the clips of it. But Gerald's got it. He just won't watch it. Anyway, speaking of Gerald... There are shows out there that a lot of people really don't like. Shows such as Super Milk Chan, Trouble Chocolate, the original Mobile Suit Gundam, Mad Bull, and Odin. Sometimes this hatred is very warranted, such as Trouble Odin Chocolate oh. and Trouble Chocolate. <laughs> and sometimes it's not warranted, such as the end of Odin, or Mobile Suit Gundam, or Mad Bull. Savakis, you're wrong. Anyway, um, sometimes there are shows that are really disliked. Not really because of any fault of its own, but because of total, utter, complete, just bungling and localization. You mean like Fist of the North Star? Like Fist of the North Star. In fact, this is one of the worst jobs that I've seen ever. But I'll get to the details of it later. The show that I'm going to be talking about is the classic giant robot show, 
Piper Beast Machine Dangayo. Dangayo itself is a three-part OAV series from 1987, 88, and 89, and it follows the journey of these four teenagers with superpowers. Mia Alice, who has the ability to create these psychic shields. Lambda Nam, the youngest of the group. She has the power to shoot powerful beams of energy from her fingers. Roll Kuran, voiced by uh, Akira Kamiya, by the way, who is the only male in the group and who has the ability to become basically invincible the faster he runs. And Pi Thunder, voiced by the very sadly underutilized Naoko Matsui, who is this really awesome tan beauty whose power is to be just really incredibly freaking strong. The show itself is basically about how they find themselves together on the ship that is piloted by this crazy-ass doctor named Dr. Tarsan. Basically, these four teenagers were his experiments, and all four of them have lost their memories temporarily. They also are told that their job is to just pilot this gigantic robot that is called Dangayo. Dr. Tarsan's original idea was to create a team specifically to sell to this group of kind of bad guys in the universe called the Bunker Pirates that are led by this guy named Captain Garamond. However, that's not really how it ends up being. The main character in the show, Mia Alice, slowly starts to get these memories of her homeworld. Eventually, she remembers that she's from Earth. Straight away, everybody runs off with her to Earth, only to be pursued by these bunker pirates. And eventually, we learn that these teens, each of them is from a different planet. Pi Thunder, the really, really strong tanned girl, happens to be the daughter of Captain Garamoff himself. And Captain Garamoff is not exactly too happy with all of this, so basically he sends out a cyborg called Gil Berg, who was actually played by Shigeru Chiba. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was Dwayne Gill, and when you'd walk out, they'd have the little sparklers on the side in lieu of actual pyrotechnics. Unfortunately, no. This is one of the most unusual performances I've seen out of Shigeru Chiba. Shigeru Chiba usually is known for, like, screaming and comedy, and this is just dark and it's one of two things it's either he's the very brooding very serious straight-laced guy or he's screaming like a lunatic and there's usually no in between but sometimes it's both one after the other depending (laughs) on the character yeah yeah gilberg is actually a pretty awesome guy too right in the beginning of the show the bunker pirates are like okay how can we trust you and he says this is how i'll prove my loyalty and he reaches in and rips out his human eye and crushes it in front of them. Just to show, you know, he's serious about it. Anyway, what follows in this three-part series is... Really, really terrific giant robot fights and some of the best-looking mechs I've ever seen in animation. This is, however, the most maligned giant robot show that I can think of being released in the U.S. Not really without good reason. But if you want an idea of just how much people hate this show, just listen to the episode of Dave and Joel's Fast Karate where they reviewed the show. They also hated Madball, though, so how do you know that their opinion is correct? Well, I'm just going to say that their opinion is uninformed and totally inaccurate. See, wait, 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 I thought it is accurate based on what they saw. Well, that's the, the trick. In a way, it is accurate. In a way, it is totally inaccurate. They are right about the release of the show, but they are wrong about the show itself. Does that make any sense? That's what I'm Maybe getting to right now. they just have a different opinion from you, Gerald. No, they can't. It's impossible. Absolutely <laughs> impossible. No such thing exists. Here is the problem. Dangaya was originally released on video in three 
separate video releases by U.S. renditions in 1990. This is actually one of the first anime videos released in the U.S., along with Gunbuster, in subtitled format. And the subtitles in it were actually notoriously wrong. In the show, there's a move called the Psychic Wave and another one called Psychic Sword. The old U.S. renditions release subtitled that as Sidekick Wave and Sidekick Sword. U.S. renditions didn't last a very long time, and they went out of business, and a lot of the properties that they owned, Manga Entertainment in the U.K. happened to own as well. When they went out of business, Manga entered the market right around then, and they brought with them many of the same titles that U.S. renditions had licensed, like Dangayo, Devilman, Appleseed, and such. But because of the release style, what we ended up getting was the release style that the British had dealt with. Of all of those shows, I feel that Dangayo suffered the worst fate. Remember when I said that Dangayo was three episodes? And that plot summary that I gave a little while ago? Well, Manga Entertainment thought it would be a really good idea to just completely nix that entire first episode. I don't know what they were thinking, but a good idea. Who needs that entire first episode where characters are introduced and things are established and such? You can add it all together and make a movie. That'd be a good idea. Why don't they do that? That's exactly what they did. And so what we ended up getting was basically a flashback sequence that was used in the second video that tried to explain what happened in the first video. So it ends up being very confusing. <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense. There's lots of rapid cutting, and everybody hated it because they couldn't figure it out what was going wrong. The only people that I know that liked it liked it because it was so utterly crazy because they just couldn't figure it out. Mm. Those original videos are extremely hard to find, and there's an entire generation of anime fans that have never actually seen Dangayo in its original subtitled form. And speaking of which, they never released a subtitled version of it, Manga Entertainment. They only released a dubbed version. I don't know, let's get some samples from this dub, because Manga Entertainment was known for doing such great dubs at the time. Here's a, just a sample of some of the very fine voice acting that was used in the dub. I should mention that when I was trying to get some of the footage for this, normally what I do is I'd hook the VCR up to my computer and just capture it off, but there were some problems with that, and so I had to capture the stuff in a really stupid way, so the audio quality is very bad, but I'm trying to do the best with what I've got. This hyper napalm will burn them to a crisp. They'll look like french fries when I finish with them. In the name of Captain Gary Moss, I hereby sentence you all to death by hyper napalm. <laughs> Yeah, that was... God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty you know, bad voice acting, even I, for I manga. I don't know if I remember, like, we've ever discussed a show on here that would warrant it talking about it, but I always really hate when they, like, try and make something sound cool or futuristic or whatever just by taking a normal word and then sticking another space. word in front of it. Yeah, like, <laughs> space rocks or hyper napalm. To be honest, Star Blazers is extremely guilty of this. It is. Oh, yes, it is. This show did it a lot. Do you know so if much... that was in the original Japanese or if that was something done for the dub? Some of the wording in there was very different, but the <laughs> wording also was so much more different because we talked about this before. Manga Entertainment had a tendency at this time to do something that has been dubbed 15ing. 15ing was the act of inserting profanity into a show because when they were releasing shows over there, they needed to increase the rating of it in order to get people interested in it, or at least that's what their feeling was. Well, that was the selling point for anime, was that it was adult and mature, yeah. like other cartoons. What's more mature than add the word fuck all the time? Here's an example of one of these lines. This is one where they just decided to pull some nonsense out of nowhere. You must 
leave the planet of Leticia immediately and tell Garamoth who sent you. Wait, I recognize your voice. Yes, it's very familiar. I know, you're Roe Grant. Yeah, that's my name. Don't wear it out. Anyway, so what if it is? Ah, of course you won't remember me, will you? You poor brainwashed little turd. The last time we met, you were part of this planet's resistance. I kicked your spotty little ass out into deep space. I should have killed you. It would save me to bother now. Yeah? Well, there's no way you'll even get close to... Fuck! Wait, that's not a extended fuck. That's a fuck and then a, a scream. Oh! <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was hoping it was going to be like the angel cop. Fuck and piss! <laughs> But I guess that's, like, the high watermark. Yeah, uh, they can only do that so often. Yeah. I and... work to come up with that stuff. I love how they actually used the, that's my name, don't wear it out. Oh, um, God. Like, the writing in it is just so seriously? bad. Like, the guy never said, you pathetic little turd, obviously. <laughs> what I love is that vocal cording of the one guy in that. I've never heard that anywhere outside of anime. Here's another one, which is probably the most egregious 15-ing that I've come across. I assume and this is the Angel Cop one, because you no. called it... Oh. No, no, it's not. <laughs> the original line that this guy says is something along the lines of, you will never rule our planet. That is all that he says. You'll never rule our planet. This is what he ends up saying, and it'll be pretty obvious where the 15-ing comes in. Resistance forces! This planet is now under the protection of Captain Garimoth. You don't fool us, you imperialist piece of shit! Captain Garimoth can stuff his protection up his ass and fuck off while he's at it! <laughs> I like that. You're funny. It's a shame I gotta kill you. <laughs> so, how do you think it goes from... The very blue collar, huh? Oh, you're funny. Shame I gotta kill you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, and how do you think it I goes from Gerald you'll never rule our gold here i mean if you like madball how can you not love this like, i guess it has to be very high concept video to go with the high concept dialogue mm, yeah high content and i don't think that anything was added in madball i want to believe that everything that they said was pretty accurate much as i love akio otsuka to hear the japanese track of madball is not something i'm especially seeking to do. <laughs> English Poor version Darryl's is... dreams will be shattered. The definitive one. But no, the scans are pretty much spot on, yeah. too, so... Yeah, so... No dialogue changing was necessary. <laughs> I don't know, maybe he could have been told something completely differently about putting a finger up a girl's ass to... Well, the hookers were screaming, like, cockroach, son of the bitch! <laughs> Piece of a snake! <laughs> Probably change that to less Ingersheep profanity. <laughs> oh boy. To finish it off, I guess, in terms of the dubbing side of it, I, I like to say that it comes from the uh, Angel Cop school of dialogue. If you've seen Angel Cop, this will be pretty obvious. I thought the all these clips were from the Angel Cop school of dialogue. <laughs> no, no, this yeah. one is especially, and you'll you'll see why. Again, the original dialogue sounded nothing like this. Lambo, let her go. So, Pi, could you hear Shazara's thoughts as well? If that woman's been brainwashed by Captain Garamuth, then I'm a sugar-frosted donut. With cream. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, God! <laughs> the fact that they 
they did something like that twice in two different shows. Yeah. Well, the, the first one was apparently a reference to some current events acquittal. Like the lawyer said, oh, if this is justice, then I'm banana. But this one I have nothing for. I just think it has to be something equivalent to when Station Shitemas would do their parody dubs and <laughs> there would be remaining extraneous lip flaps three seconds after their line was done. So they'd just say, like, you know, and stuff. Or you know, some just <laughs> a filler thing. So it's like sugar-frosted donut <laughs> with cream. With cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aww. So maybe you've got a better idea exactly how this dub seemed. <laughs> the problem is, is that it wouldn't have been so bad if all these people who had seen that dub ended up hating the show. Maybe they wouldn't have liked the show anyway. There's a good chance they would have never have liked the show seeing this version of it. Yeah, we talk about this a lot. A lot of times when people see something that's dubbed badly and then they don't like the show, and then you try and say, no, it's not the show's fault, it's the dub that was bad. Yeah. Right. And they don't want to believe you. They never do. They're always like, no, no, I, I saw what happened and that show still pretty much sucks. I don't know what to say in this situation. I hope that... At least for some cases, it's not going to be like the nail in the coffin. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with One Piece. Who knows how mm. many people have watched the four kids dub of that and said, oh, that show sucks. I don't need to watch it. Yeah, yeah One Piece is a very good example. A recent example, anyway. Yeah, you're, you're right. Nobody liked Dangayo. Nobody liked Dangayo, and everybody, I'm pretty sure, saw this version because back in 1990, these tapes were like $40 a piece, and very few people saw it. There isn't a lot of hope for Dangayo. There's not, like, this contingent of Dangayo fans waiting to get the original released. But there's enough of a contingent so that some fans put together a pretty decent fan sub of it. And so maybe I'll try to find the torrent for that. It's unfortunate in that it was actually a really short show. Three episodes long. Because it's so short, it never really has a chance to really get very bad. But mm. it's a show that stops at a really, really insane point. 10 or 15 years later, I'm going to do a TV show called Dangayo G that's going to be awful. It has nothing to do with the original Dangayo, right? It does, but from what I understand, it's very vague and it's revealed like quite a ways into the show. And it's mm. also a bad show, I understand. Uh, so. so, what's the recommendation for this? I mean, it's got a bad dub, there's no ending, it ends in a really bad cliffhanger. Why should folks go check this one out? The show itself has got terrific animation awesome designs, terrific robot battles, and the characters are pretty neat. It's not often that you see like a team where it's composed of three females and a male, and the thing is that the ending is rough, but it's, I was too harsh on saying that it's a horrible, horrible cliffhanger ending. It wraps things up in a pretty rough way. So, I think that it's a show that, if you like giant robot shows, I really suggest that you check this out. It's kind of insane, and I like it for that insanity, but I would say that this is more of a giant robot show fans show than it is anything else. All right, but this is directed by Hirano, so the big question remains to be answered, where are the lesbians at? There's no lesbians. Absurd. I know it's absurd, but there are no lesbians. I didn't realize the man was capable of it. I'm I sure know. if you looked carefully enough, Apocalypse Zero probably had lesbians in it somewhere. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. And virtually everything else he has done has had lesbians of some sort, but this is, well, I guess there's a first for everybody. So, yeah, Dengayo. Three parts. It's online. Find it. If you've got the manga version, burn it.
KWO. This is Corbin from Colorado. I'm just calling to let you know that I've bought Project ACO and Serial Experiments Lane by your recommendation. I've enjoyed them both very much. Anyway, my question is about the Dread Spectre of Moe. Why do you think it's so popular in Japan? I really hope for the sake of all humanity it isn't rolled Japan-like kids. Okay. Thanks for, thanks for taking my call, and I hope to get to you by the end of 2008. See you later. talked a lot about Moe over the course of this show, mostly to complain about it for various different reasons, but there's a lot of it out there now, and it's kind of hard to avoid it, and I tend not to like to always make super sweeping judgments about things, and I'll, I'll give some stuff a chance. So, there came along a show called uh, Podemayo, which is a Moe show. We ended up watching it, um, Gerald and I both watched this, and we decided that um, we should review this on the show, because I think it'll be good for us to talk about this on the show. You're making it out like this is like an AA session, almost. <laughs> We don't always all agree on things. In fact, a lot of times we don't all agree on things. But I guess the nature of all being part of one show is that people kind of tend to mash all of our different opinions together or ignore some of our opinions. And no, how, how it works is that, Clarissa, your opinion and my opinion are completely ignored, and Daryl is the one that everybody thinks is the opinions yeah. of both of them. Okay, true. I was trying not to say it flat out like that, but that does happen a lot. Our opinions also sometimes get exaggerated, whether by people not paying attention or by us maybe exaggerating them or just people extrapolating in their own mind. Regardless, our kind of opinions on Moe and a lot of the things that we talk about in regards to it is a big recurring thing on the show and something that a lot of people talk about either to agree wholeheartedly with us or tell us that we're horrible people. But anyway, the show Ponomayo, it's based off of a four coma, which is a four pan comic book. Osman Gadayo was originally based off of a four coma series. Lucky Star was based off of a four coma series. It's a fairly popular comic format. You'll see them sometimes in regular manga or doujinshi as like a little extra thing at the end, but there are also a lot of these series that are made up entirely of four coma. It's a format that's usually used, at least as far as I've seen, for comedy. Something, I guess, about those simplified four panels leads to a really basic joke and punchline kind of flow. Pretty much like our comic strips in the newspaper. That's yeah. Just... yeah, the Sunday funnies, stuff like that. They have a lot of these, and this one in particular started out serialization in a magazine called Moeon, which um, I believe may be dedicated to four coma manga, but eventually it was moved to a seinen magazine called Comic High. And in 2000. Seven. Uh, I guess this was popular enough that they made an anime adaptation produced by J.C. Staff. J.C. Staff has worked on like a billion things, right? Yeah, what are yeah. some of the more notable ones? Like I, when I think of them, Tana. I think of like, yeah, that one. And yeah. also they did Azumanga Daio. Mm-hmm. And they did Cell Saga, Yami Namatsue, yep. Reader Die television series. 
Uh-huh. Whole lot and a lot of stuff. Usually they've got pretty uh, good animation. It might, it might be a bit inconsistent, like Reader Die TV was a bit inconsistent, but right. usually their animation is pretty good. Yeah, and a lot of these little four-coma comedy series are what you might sort of describe slice-of-life series in that they usually involve a cast of characters, and you sort of follow these characters around, and just kind of silly or random things happen in their day-to-day lives that... You know, there are little jokes about. Um, if you watch Azamangadayo, you know, there's this whole group of students and they go through day to day life and silly things happen and they all have kind of weird personalities that complement or conflict with one another and so hijinks ensue. Potomayo is very similar to that, except with a, a much more obvious kind of moe slant to it than Azamanga had. The general storyline of this, as much as there is one, is that the junior high student named uh, Moriyama Sunao. One day, he's sitting at home, eating breakfast, and he finds this little thing in his refrigerator. It's like this little, super deformed, tiny cat girl type of thing. She doesn't look like a regular, like, sexy cat girl. She's like a little blob with a big head and cat ears. She can't really talk. She just kind of makes weird noises, and she just shows up. It appears in his refrigerator. You would expect, usually, for somebody to be completely freaked out by this, but Sunasawa is a pretty lackluster kind of person. He's pretty calm and doesn't really get excited. So he's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. He happens to be eating something that I think probably only Japanese people would eat, which is a bun with potato and mayonnaise filling. Sounds delicious. He doesn't know what the hell this little thing he found is called, so he takes the first part of potato and the first part of mayonnaise and he names her Potomayo. She ends up basically clinging with him and sitting on his head or whatever and going to school and, of course, everybody else sees her, and everybody else says, oh, what the hell, what is that? Oh, it's so cute. Oh, you know, where did you find her? Blah, blah, blah. And basically, the series follows Suno and Potomayo as they kind of go about their life, and silly things happen, and everybody is kind of weird personalities. Of course, one of the my favorite parts, and I think probably also Gerald's favorite things about the series, is that Potomayo is not the only strange creature that comes out of Suno's refrigerator for no apparent reason. Shortly after... Mm-hmm. Um, Potomayo shows up and they're both out of the house. Another little thing comes out, kind of similar, also a little blob thing with a big head. Except instead of having cat ears, she has these weird, like, spiral horn things with faces on the sides of her head. She just has a big scythe with a skull on it. Potomayo is, like, happy and cute, and the other one that ends up being named Guchiko by a classmate of Suno's is, like, the opposite. Guchiko is, I guess, the more tsundere character, that she breaks things a lot, and is mostly pretty antisocial, and also uh, the things on the side of her head shoot lasers. Death lasers. It's it's pretty yeah, neat. Death lasers. There's a lot of death lasers in the show, more than you would probably expect. Basically, like, everything goes from there, and all of the comedy comes from not only the weirdness of these little things running around and doing stuff and people reacting to them, but also just things happening because of the personalities of the characters, like all of Suno's classmates. A lot of the characters are parodies of 
of some kind of cliche or like an exaggeration of a particular kind of personality. Suno is very quiet and serious. There's the girl, uh, Mikan, who is the girl who really likes him, and she always goes on these over-the-top spiels about how wonderful Suno is and how much she loves him and how, oh, you know, I'll bake chocolates for him or whatever, and, you know, it'll be so romantic. And it's always just way over-the-top, and she spaces out about it. There's the boy who is a member of the cheerleading team, though for some reason he wears a girl's cheerleading outfit instead of a boy's cheerleading outfit, and who is, like, the Moe-obsessed character who becomes completely obsessed with Potomayo, but never actually manages to be able to get close to her, and also Potomayo absolutely hates him. And then there's the boy who is friends with Mudo, the cheerleader, Moe fanatic boy, the kind of quiet, gay Repressed homosexual? I don't know if he's really that repressed. I guess he's not, like, super active about it, but he definitely has an interest in uh, Mudo, and there's a lot of jokes about that. And then Natsu has the protective, angry older brother. But one of my favorite characters is the uh, rich girl character, who's a a complete bitch, and who is a parody of... uh, uh, female characters with like these really cutesy, high-pitched voices. Here's a an audio clip to show you uh, what this girl sounds like. I think I gotta get Wilfred Brimley on the line. Take care <laughs> of my diabetes that just onset as a result of listening to that audio clip. You know, she she sounds a whole lot more annoying when you don't have the face to go along with the voice. Yeah, hmm. yeah. That's what you get when you so, rhythmically beat mice in order to produce a voice. Yeah, so. it's like that little girl in Galgagar, just hitting a mouse with a hammer and making it squeak. Well, these mice have been trained and arranged on this rack that when played, they will squeak the bells of St. Mary. Exactly. <laughs> yes. The rough thing is that, I mean, we're sitting here talking about this, and I can kind of describe what these characters like, and that the humor results from kind of these people's personalities and, like, just kind of silly things that happen. But the worst thing with talking about comedy shows on here is I think that more so than probably any other show, it's very difficult to be able to convey whether a comedy show is good and funny by talking about it. That was the problem with Cromarty. Yeah, I mean, any other series like this that we talk about is going to be the same I think it's just because anytime you have to explain a joke to tell people why it's funny, then it isn't funny anymore. Yeah. Well, and I mean, a lot of the humor in Potomayo relies heavily on, like, the visuals and the voice acting. So even if I were to describe the situation, without being able to actually watch the scenes, you're not going to really get the full joke, and so you're not really going to see all of what's funny about it. So, it's probably hard for me to convey why this show succeeds in being funny, but I think it just has a really well-developed sense of comic timing in the series. Extensive use of death lasers. Yeah, there's a lot of just kind of, like, crazy, over-the-top things. Not in a really frenetic sense. No, this Um, is not a hyperactive show. It's not Excel Saga. Yeah, it's not really like Excel Saga or anything like that. It's strange, and And everything is just really integrated. All of the humor comes from the personalities of the characters. 
yes, there's some weird things that happen, but it never gets to the point where it's just completely random. Often they'll throw in, like, okay, there's some weird things that happen. Like, after the TV anime, they did a series of, like, five or six short special episodes. I think maybe those were done for the DVDs. I think so, yeah. The premise of one of the special episodes is that Hodomayo grows to be incredibly gigantic. They never explain why this happens. So, like, sometimes in order to kickstart the joke, something weird will happen. They'll throw in something that seems kind of random. But the entire humor um, doesn't rely on complete randomness. Everything no, r- randomness in and of itself isn't really funny. The Monty Python guys would say that they actually had to plan the randomness out very, very carefully to make sure it was right. actually funny. Right. I think we tend to be really hard on Moe, and I'm not necessarily going to apologize for that, just because I think that there are definite criticisms of Moe as a trend that are worth making. But I don't think that it necessarily means that every single show that has Moe elements or looks Moe is necessarily going to be a bad show. Well, I there's a difference between, like, Moon Phase, where, you know, ten minutes into the first episode, we see, like, a ten-year-old girl taking a bath. And, well, yeah. And then well, something that's relatively innocent like this that's just sort of a comedy. Mm. The show is not sexualized. It's not really about that at all. And it really, I think, avoids the creepiness. And maybe part of that is the fact that, like, I mentioned Hodomayo isn't, like, a regular cat girl. She's just, like, a weird little thing. Well, it's like, I guess, Azumanga Dayo, perhaps? Yeah. Which I would consider a good Moe show. I mean, if you want to deny that's a Moe show, that's kind of hard, because it was in the Moe anthology. Right, but right. I guess the girls themselves weren't overly sexualized. I suppose it was kind of the world around them that did that, perhaps? Like, that weird teacher or whatever? I don't know really how to explain it. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to get into a debate right now about sexualization and creepiness and what makes sexualization creepy or not, because that's a really long debate. But I really think that this show is probably going to be enjoyable to people who aren't in general fans of Moe. I mean, I'm not a fan of the overall Moe trend, but I thought this was a good, entertaining show to watch. I I really hate Moe. I really hate Moe a lot, and this is one of those shows where I watched it, and I was like, okay, this opening is really stupid, so I'm going to hate the show, obviously. And then I watched it, and I'm like, ah, shit, this is kind of funny. There's things about the show that I really don't like. There's some of the side characters that I don't like at all that I think are stupid and pointless, Mm -hmm. and I like the show in spite of those problems, I suppose, Mm -hmm. because I think that kind of the timing of of the humor is pretty well done, and the uh, situations is well done, and of course, explaining these things makes them not sound funny. So, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a perfect show, obviously. I mean, I haven't really gone into a lot of issues with it, but I would would definitely agree that there was stuff that, you know, they did that I didn't think all of it was funny, and, you know, there were certain characters that I liked less than others. But yeah, like, I mean, I don't know, I think that, I think that without Guchiko, I think it would have probably been a very much less interesting show. Yeah, you know, I think that, too. I mean, I think she was definitely one of the, the more like entertaining thing but uh, yeah I mean it's definitely uh, a Moe show but it's a good show if you like comedy series I recommend you give it a shot and maybe you'll like it too maybe not but you could say that about everything well yeah Bladders Blather promo number one take 23 do you like movies and television do you like science fiction and anime if you said yes then why not try Lather's Blather it's the podcast by fans for fans so head on over to oh jeez god cut what's wrong this time this is 
garbage. It has no flow, no grace. Oh, you think you can do better, Mr. 23 Takes and Counting? I was thinking more urban to bring in the kids, you know? Here, let's try this. You had best be stepping off my grill, home slice, or else I'll call in all my homos from the south side, boy! Sweet zombie criminy, I've seen polar bears that are less white than you. Oh, you wanna fight me? I'll come right out of the booth! I'll put my foot so far up you, you'll take shoe leather! Oh yeah? Yeah! Oh yeah, we'll come and try it. Come on. Lather's Blathers Podcast. Check out lathersblather.blogspot.com. Everything you always wanted in a podcast, and less. Ooh, I like that. All right, that's going to do it for show number 66 of the Anime World Order Podcast. Seems like it's been a while since uh, we did one of these, but no, it's just because we had midterms and crap to worry about. Yep. So, no, a long time ago, we said that we were going to try and make a dent in these things that we don't have full releases of, so we're just going to review like a volume or so. Blood Plus, part one. Sony's releasing this, just came out maybe last week, and they sent me not just the volume one, but also part one. If you'll recall in a previous episode, it probably might have been last show or the show before that one, we were talking about how a good way that I think anime companies should start releasing anime is to release the box set and then also just the single disc volume because that way the people who are fans of the show will not have to buy it one disc at a time and the people who aren't sure can buy just volume one. Well, Tony seems to have listened to us and gone ahead and done that. You get the first five episodes of Blood Plus and with part one, you get the first half of the series. But since Blood Plus is a long show, that means you get 25 episodes worth in the box set. So I'm really glad that they did it that way because I really hope that this release method succeeds. As far as price goes, price isn't exactly where I wish it was, but Volume 1 you can get online for about $20, and Part 1, which is the first 25 episodes, that'll run you 80 if you go to Best Buy, Part 1 is, I think it's set at $100. Maybe it was 85 the first week it came out, but it's $80 on deep discount. So with the 20% off sale, that's something like, what, $64? I think I did that math right. Anyway, as for the show itself, you probably already know what this show is. I mean, it's on Adult Swim. It's a follow-up to the OAV Blood the Last Vampire that Production IG made back in the 90s as sort of a test for their digital animation techniques. It was this one-shot thing that was really just a tech demo. I mean, the story wasn't really all that much to it. I was like, oh, it's kind of all right, but where's the rest of it? I never bought it because it was kind of expensive. It's probably like $12 nowadays, but it's only 30 minutes long. Blood Plus is the full-length anime series sort of either follow-up or remake. I think it's got to be a remake. I'm not really sure exactly if it ties in to Blood the Last Vampire or not, but the original Blood OEV was kind of known for a couple things, not just the animation, but also the hilarious, really racist black people in it, and it was pretty violent. The anime series doesn't seem to have quite as hilariously racist black people, but it is pretty damn violent. I mean, the very first scene is all about slaughtering an entire village of women and children in Vietnam, but after that first scene and first episode, I mean, everyone who's seen this show on Adult Swim knows that not a whole lot really happens for most of this series. This probably is not the show for me. This show is very generic anime plot. 
girl doesn't have any memory of who she is, but she's an ordinary high school student, and maybe there's lesbianism involved, because lesbians are cool, and Gerald will buy it if it has lesbians in it. One day, she realizes she's the only one who can fight the monsters with the sword that is a legendary sword, but she doesn't remember all her secret superpowers, and... Is there some rule to anime that everything involving vampires has to be either terribly generic or terribly horrible? Why is it that every single freaking anime that gets shown on Adult Swim has to be about vampires and be terrible? Trinity Blood? Why is that on TV? This? Probably not my first choice. Death Note? Okay, that's not really about vampires, but all the people who watch it are probably goths and wish they were vampires, and I guess it's on at a late enough time that you have to be a vampire to catch it. Blood Plus doesn't really have anything that engages me. It's very middling. The animation isn't spectacular. The music isn't, like, incredibly great. Plot is something that I've seen or heard of a hundred times. I personally wouldn't buy this. But it's on TV, and you've had the chance to watch this series. If you like this series, then you should probably pick it up on DVD, and they've done a really good release of it. And as far as the box goes, you get not just... The box, you also get a t-shirt, and you also get a manga sampler. As far as extras goes, there's some interviews, but it's pretty light as far as extras, I would say. It's not like the Blood the Last Vampire OAV, where they had to have a lot of extras because the actual feature was only like 30 minutes long. So anyway, yeah, this isn't really a full-on review review because I haven't seen the entire show. I just watched what was sent to me. Normally on AWO, we review the entire show, except when we don't have the entire show. The alternative to that is to either wait until we have this whole show, in which case it's like a year, or just do what we're doing now. So anyway, next episode on Anime World Order, what do we have in store for the fine listeners? I'm going to be taking a look at a three-part OAV series from the early 90s. Uh kind of really wanted to be Tekaman Blade, but it isn't. That doesn't mean it's bad. It's a three-part show by Masami Obari called Detonator Orga. Oh With boy, music Masami by the Obari. Berserk guy! Yes, Susumu Hirasawa, you, the guy who does Berserk. Real, real good music. I like his Berserk, music. Paranoia Agent, Millennium Basically, Actress. Basically, Satoshi Kon does now. Yep. Yeah. He's, he's being kept employed by Satoshi Kon. So... I will be taking a look at a series that we've had quite a few requests for over the time we've been doing this podcast. School Rumble, a show that is not actually about really anything that rumbles. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a fighting show, like rival schools. Yeah. It is about school, but yeah, it does kind of sound like a fighting series, but it isn't at all. (laughs) Has nothing to do with transforming tape cassettes, learning about education. (laughs) No. No. A sad thing indeed. For my review, I guess I have not reviewed anime in a while. I reviewed nothing for the last month, and then I just reviewed manga. So this time I decided I may as well get back on the horse. And uh, on the subject of Suzuma Hirasawa and Satoshi Kon, I'm going to review Paprika. By popular requests, uh, the newest Satoshi Kon movie with music by Suzuma Hirasawa. And we'll see how that one turns out. So, feedback for this episode... You know the drill by now, maybe. Email address is AnimeWorldOrder at gmail.com. The website is www.AnimeWorldOrder.com where you can listen to all our previous episodes and see our review index of all the shows that we've done in the past. We have a voicemail number, which is 206-666-4296. Hopefully I was responsible. Put in some voicemails here. I know we didn't answer or respond to voicemails. We really need to do, like, another voicemail show. It'll happen someday. And we'll do two voicemails again. Anything else. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I apologize for the inevitable delay. I know we missed a week or two. 
whatever. I'm not getting paid for this. Anyone want to plug other podcasts that they appeared on or will be appearing on shortly? I will be making a guest appearance on Destroy All Podcasts DX talking about a, a couple of OAVs recently spoken about by uh, Justin Savakis, I believe, in his very treasure column on the Anime News Network. That would be Twilight Q. And I, too, will be appearing on uh, Destroy All Podcasts DX. I will be taking a different perspective of Detonator Orga. So, yeah, I was being lazy. It's the fanboy perspective on that show. We're going to be talking all about how significant the transformations of the mech suits are. And uh, so, if you want that perspective of it, listen to that version of the show. If you want the really boring analyticals perspective of it, and you know who did the background in scene four, listen to the review on Anime World Order. All right, sounds like a good time. Anyway, we'll see you around next time with cream. Also, wait. What? Wait. What? What are we well, waiting on? Wait, I got a, one more announcement. Not really an announcement, but just kind of a question out there. If anyone has any idea of any good, like, uh, uh, this is in, in, uh, re- this is in reference to the archive project that we're putting together. And if anybody has any ideas of really good content management so- system software. So. Harold, don't. What? Okay, I guess. I guess uh, I'm being ruled out then, so we can leave that.